Hey there, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Bible in Life podcast. And let me say to you a Merry Christmas from me and my family to you and your family and wherever you're at. I pray that in the midst of this Christmas season, you have the opportunity to enter into the story that we are a part of, the story of what God has done for us in Jesus. And you can revel in that and celebrate that and savor that in the midst of all your Christmas activities. So I hope you have a wonderful Christmas season and uh, a Merry Christmas with you and your family and uh, those that you love. And also, let me say at the outset, just a huge thank you to those of you who have sustained and made the Bible in Life podcast, the Bible in Life ministry, the listener's commentary, this whole online ministry. To those of you who have made this possible by your faithful prayers, your encouraging emails, your generous financial support, it wouldn't be possible without you. So thanks a ton uh, for um, all you have done this year. And God is using uh, you and us together to make a difference in the lives of people. I, I got an email uh, just within the last week or so from a young man in the Czech Republic who is studying and preparing for ministry, using the listener's commentary as part of his studies and part of his preparation. And I get these kind of emails from around the world, around my own country, and it's such a blessing and such an encouragement to me. And so thanks a ton for making this possible. Over the last uh, couple of weeks, what we have been doing for our Advent series is really just thinking through the story of the Bible and all the ideas of waiting and looking and hoping uh, up to the Advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ. And we're going to pair that with where we're at in the same position of longing and waiting and hoping for the second advent of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And so we have been just walking through the story of God's promise from Abraham through Israel uh, leading up to Jesus himself. And there is a song, a Christmas carol, I guess, that's not as popular as others, although it, uh, it's still fairly well known, gets played quite a bit in various places around this time of year. And that song is, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And in this episode of The Bible and Life, we now come to that part of the story. Um, Israel had entered into covenant with uh, the living God at Mount Sinai. And God had led Israel into the promised land. He would be their king. And they would be his people. They would be, as Exodus 19, 6 says, a kingdom of priests where they would worship God and they would take God's goodness and wisdom and they would bring it to the nations and they would represent the longings and hopes and prayers of the people and the nations to God himself. They would be a kingdom of priests. But as you read through the Old Testament story over the course of time, Israel came to a place where instead of wanting God to be their king, they wanted their own human king, just like all the other nations had. And God warned them what comes with that, armies and taxes and conscripted labor and things like that. But the people insisted. And so God gave them what they wanted. He gave them a king. And so you get the story of Israel now with a king. And that eventually, that kingship was uh, focused in Jerusalem. And the 
great poster boy of kingship was David himself. David then becomes the 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 line through which the Messiah, the Christ, is going to come. And so they now have a king. God in his mercy and gracious gives them that and actually is going to use that to fulfill his purposes for the entire world. But as God said, uh, things didn't always go well with the king. The kings led them into political alliances with pagan neighbors. And so now there's uh, idolatry and paganism plaguing God's people. There were taxes. There were conscripted uh, workforces and labor. Uh, There were raising upstanding armies. Uh, and warfaring with the neighboring kingdoms, and things did not go as greatly as they thought it would, having a human king. And in the course of time, after the first three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, what happened to the nation of Israel is they split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom typically is referred to by the name Israel in the Old Testament. The southern kingdom, which revolved around just two of the tribes, one of those tribes being the tribe of Judah, is just called Judah in the Old Testament. And so now Israel is split into two, uh, and there's sometimes this tension between north and south, Um, The North having its own political alliances, the South, you know, doing their own things. There's idolatry and all sorts of chaos because of their unfaithfulness to Yahweh. And long story short, as we noted last week, because of their unfaithfulness to God, their violation of the covenant, they experienced the curses of the covenant, the ultimate curse of which was um, being conquered by a foreign kingdom and being expelled from the land. Well, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the world superpower of that time period in the 700s BC, um, which was Assyria. And so Assyria devastated and destroyed the kingdom of Israel and laid them waste in 722. And they were taken away into captivity. Assyria's foreign policy was to take some people away and deport them and scatter them throughout their their empire and have them intermarry with the people of the land, bring people from other conquered kingdoms, drop them into whatever place they were at, have them intermarry as a way to sort of obliterate their cultural distinctives. And so that's what happened to the northern kingdom. That's actually in the New Testament where the Samaritans come from is the intermarrying with some of these pagan kingdoms that were um, uh, residual from the Assyrian uh, conquering. And so the northern kingdom is destroyed in 722 B.C., But the southern kingdom of Judah remains and persists for quite some time. And eventually, uh, a new superpower arises in the ancient Near East. That superpower is Babylon. And in the late 600s BC, uh, Babylon now rules the day. And they conquer uh, the kingdom of Judah. And eventually, in 586 BC, uh, BC, Babylon destroys Jerusalem, captures it, and leads uh, a lot of the nobles of Judah away into captivity. And that then uh, means we're at this point of exile. The promise, what happened to that? Like, what are we supposed to do now? God's people have been expelled from their land just as Moses had warned in the curses of Deuteronomy just as the prophets had warned would happen if they didn't repent and return to their God, now it's happened. And listen to these words from Psalm 137 that kind of captures the, the mood, like the, the loss, the sense of being forsaken, 
the sense of displacement. Psalm 137 verses 1 through 4 says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion refers to Jerusalem. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. And so they're hanging up their harps as they're sitting by the rivers of Babylon, uh, weeping and crying. For there our captors demanded of us songs, our tormentors jubilation, saying, Sing for us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And so we arrive at exile. And with that sort of heartache, that sort of brokenness, how can we sing songs of praise, songs of worship, songs of Zion here in a foreign land? Um, and so Israel languishes in captivity in Babylon for uh, almost 70 years from the beginning of the first deportation to the destruction of Jerusalem. It was a long time. But eventually, after decades of exile, a new world superpower is, uh, comes on the scene. And that superpower is Persia. And God raised up Persia and raised up Cyrus the Persian. Um, and they came and they conquered Babylon in, with, with no fight. You can read the story in history and you can read it in the Bible. <clears throat> there was no fight. Um, and they defeated uh, Babylon. And Cyrus had a more gracious foreign policy. And he allowed uh, captive exiles to return to their homeland. And you can actually read about that in the Cyrus Cylinder. If you Google Cyrus Cylinder, you'll see this clay uh, cylinder with writing on it that, that describes some of the, the activities of this King Cyrus that is the one who was responsible for defeating Babylon and sending the Jews back home, allowing them to return back to Jerusalem, back to their homeland. And so beginning then at that point, Various waves of Jewish exiles uh, pack up their things, make the long journey across the desert and back to Jerusalem and back to Judea. Um, and so now they return home. And when they arrive, the city lays waste. It's devastated, right? And so they have to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They have to rebuild the temple. They have to restart everything. That's where the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah show up in your Old Testament. They are stories of rebuilding as uh, people return to their homeland and need to rebuild. And Nehemiah, you know, he gets news that the even though they've rebuilt some of the city, the city walls of Jerusalem are still um, broken down and thus the people are vulnerable to foreign attacks and to outsiders. And he's heartbroken over that. And so eventually he himself leads a return back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the city walls. Actually, it's during the same time period of rebuilding where the book of Esther fits in in your Bible as well. But the story of Esther takes place back in Persia. She doesn't go back to Jerusalem. She is in Persia. And so uh, you get this return from exile. You get this rebuilding, rebuilding of the city, rebuilding of the temple. And yet, the Shekinah glory of God, God's very glory and presence never return to fill the second temple the way it had filled the first under King Solomon. And not only that, even though it seemed like exile was over and they were being allowed to return home, 
they remained under foreign occupation. It was the Persians. Yes, they had been allowed to go home, but they were under Persian control with Persian governors um, and obligated to the Persian kings. And after the Persians came the Greeks with Alexander the Great storming through uh, the Mediterranean world. And when Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was split up between his uh, generals. And then for Israel, it, then came the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south. And and because that little strip of land that is known as Israel is so important for tra trade and travel through that area, then they were vying for control of that land and kicking Israel back and forth like a soccer ball between them. And, and that led to all sorts of war and struggle and oppression and death. And when eventually the Seleucids gained, gained control, man, they were not nice people. And um, one of the worst was a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, ruling out of uh, Syria to the north of Israel and controlling now Israel itself. Um, Antiochus Epiphany, uh, I mean, Epiphany means God manifest. That tells you a little bit about who he was. He was going to try to just completely subdue Israel, and he did so by defiling the altar in the temple. How did he do that? By sacrificing a pig, an unclean pig, in the Jerusalem temple on the altar, defiling it. Not only that, he outlawed uh, some of their cultural distinctives like circumcision. Uh, so much did he outlaw that he basically said, look, if you circumcise your baby boy, then we will kill your baby boy, hang it around your mother, mother's neck, parade her through the city so that everyone will be warned, do not do this. And, and so uh, just oppression and violence. And so, yes, they returned from exile. Yes, they rebuilt the city. Yes, they rebuilt the temple. And yet, God had never returned to the temple in his Shekinah glory. And, and yet, it seemed like oppression and exile still continued. And so they longed and they hoped and they waited. And then after uh, the Greeks and the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, then finally a new power arose in the West uh, from over the Mediterranean world. And that new power was the Romans. And they came and took over the entire Mediterranean world with great brutality and great administrative skill. And that meant they took over Judea and Galilee and the land of the Jews. And that led to more oppression and more taxes and more war. And that led to more paganism and pagan idolatry in the land of promise, in Judea, in Galilee. Everywhere Rome went, they went with their standards that symbolized the goddess Roma and their, uh, their Gentile pagan ways. And so all of this plaguing Israel, which meant more longing, more hoping, more waiting. When would the branch of David come? When would God send the promised deliver? Hadn't God promised? For unto us a child will be born, unto us a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Hadn't God promised them that he would be with them? When will that happen? And that's where uh, this Christmas carol, this song, comes in. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. That's the state that Israel is in 
here at the, the turn of the ages when Christ is born. In fact, um, scholar N.T. Wright sums up first century uh, Judaism this way. He says, first century Judaism existed with a worldview which was focused on a sense of longing and expectation, of recognition that the present state of affairs had not yet seen all that God had planned for his people. They were waiting for the last chapter in their story to begin. And so when Gabriel comes to Mary in the little town of Nazareth, up north in Galilee, 500 years of waiting and longing and hoping since they had been allowed to come back to their, their homeland, and yet they're still under foreign occupation and oppression. 500 years. And so when Gabriel shows up, he says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, which in Hebrew, Yeshua, means God saves. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. That is over Israel forever, and his kingdom will have no end. It's all this history. It's all this longing. It's all this waiting that lies behind these words. Um, it's all this hoping and this angst and this expectation. When will God act? And when, when Gabriel says that he will be called the Son of the Most High, that the Lord will give him the throne of David, that he will reign over the house of Jacob, bells and whistles are ringing in Mary's ears, and all of a sudden she realizes the time has come for God to act. And a bit later in the story, Mary responds to her situation, to what God is doing in her and through her with a song of praise that's often referred to as the Magnificat. It's her worship to God for what he has done. And I'm only going to read a bit of it, but this is what it says. It says, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bondservant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And so she praises God for his mercy to her, to choose her for this amazing moment to bring the Messiah into the world. And she finishes her song of praise with these words. He, God, has given help to his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, just as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and his descendants forever. And when Mary says this, it has been 2,000 years since the days of Abraham. 2,000 years since that promise that through Abraham and his descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It has been a long and difficult history for the, for, uh, the, the people of Israel, his servant Israel. Uh, from their own unfaithfulness and their own violation of the covenant, difficulty, hardship, oppression, longing, hoping, waiting, Israel has suffered great loss. And in some ways, it, they've been forsaken because they had forsaken their God and violated their covenant with him. And they have suffered centuries now of oppression and foreign occupation, but they haven't been abandoned. 
God hadn't forgotten his promises. God hadn't forgotten his people. And so in remembrance of his mercy, as Mary says, God has done just what he spoke to their fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And so the song captures the mood in Galilee and Judea when all of this happened. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. And so we arrive at the point of the story, on the verge of the arrival of the Messiah, what they have been waiting for for centuries. We arrive, but it hasn't come without difficulty and without hardship. Longing, waiting, hoping, feeling forsaken and abandoned, wondering where God is in the midst of it all. But God is here, and God remembers, and God will fulfill his promises. Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Bible and Life podcast. Thanks again for all of you who support this ministry. If you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so at a link down in the notes below. Uh, you can go to johnwhitaker.net. You can click give and you can set up a monthly recurring donation right there. And, or you can give a one-time gift at the end of this year just to help offset all the expenses and set us up for the upcoming year. Thanks again for your support. May God bless you. May you have a wonderful Christmas. I look forward to talking with you again next week.